Bless you. So appreciate that, guys. What a joy <laughs> and privilege to, uh, to get to be here with you today and to uh, share from God's Word. And uh, yeah, I think I'm like a kid. I just pinch myself every Sunday morning when I get to do this kind of stuff. And I think I've got the best job in the whole world. And uh, to come and do it among you is is really cool and, and uh, such a privilege. I have such an affection for the, the Seaburg uh, community, for the elders, and I want to say to you guys, thank you so much for, for the, the honor privilege to, to preach. If, if I mess up, you can change anything I say. It's like, it's like you can fix it. But uh, yeah, I also want to say to you, uh, well done for... Uh, just the last two years of doing life in the messiness of life and all the stuff that's happened. And uh, I, I honestly do feel we're, we're kind of rebooting in a quite an exciting way. I have the privilege of just, just being in Johannesburg with a bunch of churches and leaders up there and just watching this fresh sense of movement and gathering. Uh, the first meeting here was just chockers and just to sense that the people of God know they were saved for community. They were rescued not to become a whole lot of islands. They were saved to be part of uh, this new entity, this living uh, organism called the church that Jesus is head of. We saved into family. And uh, I know we've been in the craziest uh, season of history in my lifetime. When I look at the news and the stuff we've been through, you know, and I'm not just thinking COVID, I'm thinking just the political unrest, the polarizational, the, uh, the social media rage and outrage, the cancel culture. The, there's a lot of vocabulary that describe, describe what's wrong. And so what happens, a lot of people kind of dial out and like live in a smaller world. Uh, I just sense the Lord wanting to heat up our world for us, heat up, heat up our hearts and say, uh, I'm calling you to be light in the darkness, and uh, many people in their desperation are kind of hanging out for the second coming of Jesus, that'll fix everything. I think he's hanging out for the second coming of the church, uh, a church that gathers to him, that loves him, that uh, orbits around his, his wisdom and grace. So my talk this morning uh, is going to be hopefully anchoring you know, securing us, uh, preparatory, kind of focusing us, and also freeing us, emancipating us, just uh, breaking off the anxieties and the tyrannies that we often live with. Can anybody identify with anxiety over the last couple of years? There may be just one or two who could say, Rigby, like, I also had a bit of anxiety. Okay, cool. I'm just glad the three of us, we should form a life group. The passage I'm preaching from is, a, is, is, is a, just the most beautiful passage of Scripture. Bit of background. Paul is talking to a, a church in Ephesus led by Timothy, this young leader who's like something between 19 and 23. He's a young guy. And uh, he's giving him counsel. And uh, in chapter 1, he's saying we've got to build our lives around the gospel. Chapter 2... You know, it's around honoring governments. Chapter 3, it's about getting leadership in place in the local church. 
And then all the way through, it's about different age groups that need to have uh, age-appropriate widows, orphans, fathers, mothers. We need it. So the church is a family. You see it in the book of Timothy. And by the time he gets to uh, chapter 5, he starts to talk about how leadership should happen in a local church. But in chapter 6, it's almost like he's about to close the letter, write off, put his pen down. But it's like the Holy Spirit whispers to Paul as he's writing to Timothy in Ephesus. And he says, oops, there's just one last thing I want to speak to you about. Now, listen carefully. You are not allowed to leave the building when I tell you what I'm going to talk about, okay? Because you guys have got a building program. We know you've got all kinds of exciting things. God's got it in his heart for you, new venue. It's in the horizon. It's in your inheritance. I'm not wanting to address any of that. So this little graph over here. It shows what we got, what the shortfalls are, and all of that. I believe God's got that covered. So I'm not after that. I'm after another gap. Not the gap between what's coming and what we need. That's not the gap. There's a bigger gap in all of our hearts and all of our lives. And if you'll come back next week at this time, I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> no. What's the bigger gap? The bigger gap is the gap between what we believe about God and, and how we behave. The bigger gap is a maturity issue. It's not about how much of the gospel do we have, it's about how much of the gospel does it have of us? How much of our hearts? And this is going to be a liberating, life-giving message. So you are not in the dentist chair having root canal treatment. That's why it's entitled Four Things God Wants For You but it plays out in an area where so much of the anxiety is at work. Paul addresses Timothy. He says, I want to tell you some stuff about money. I want to tell you about how it can anchor you and secure you. And I'm a pastor before I'm anything. I care about the people that I speak to. And I'm hoping that the love of the Father would come through this, that you would just feel His graciousness anchoring you. So what Paul does in chapter 6, and then we're going to read it now. He is having to sort out a very serious problem in the thinking in his day. And the thinking in his day was all these prosperity teachers were doing the rounds. And they were saying, man, the people that have got a lot of money and are very wealthy, those guys are the real spiritual. Because that shows you who God's blessing. If you've got a lot of money, then you're really spiritual. But you and I know that. You can have people with lots of money that are very unspiritual and very immature. Paul comes to Timothy and he says, I want you to confront that lie that is in the culture that surrounds you, but it can creep into the church, that when you're doing really, really well, then you are, then you're really blessed, and uh, if you're in trouble, then there must be a few things you question about your life. That's, that's not what the gospel teaches. And so he counters that with these verses, verse, verses from verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, Jesus called money a very little thing, the disordered desire of money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money 
have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now we're going from verse 10 to verse 17. So what's in those seven verses that I'm missing? Simply this. In mid-sentence, Paul says to Timothy, as a leader in the church, and you make sure, Timothy, that you flee all of that wrong idea on wealth and money. In other words, you can't have churches that are led by people with bad gospel understanding about wealth and finance. And he says, Timothy, you get this sorted out in your life. So as I stand here as a leader, and in terms of the common ground world, in terms of how we are co-discipling each other, we're stirring each other up on this stuff so that we're not uh, living with disordered uh, desires. And in verse 17, think about this. Young leader, Paul says to this young leader, I want you to speak to the guys in your church, Timothy, and this is how you to speak to them. Command those who are rich in this present age or present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Oh, I love that verse. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. So in the same way Paul's writing to the top earners in the first century in Ephesus, a very commercial, financial sub-hub city uh, in, 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 in the, the church planning world that he was in, common ground across the cities, probably in the top 2% of earners globally. That's not uh, means that everyone in common ground fits there. It just means we are an economically empowered people. And just in case we want to say we want to pass that message on to another church down the road, we can't do that. This is God coming to us and saying, and, and it's what He wants for us. And this is what I want you to see. God is for us. God is so for us that He doesn't need a single thing from us. But you say, but doesn't God want us to obey Him? Doesn't God want our love? Doesn't He want our worship? Doesn't He want all of that? Of course He does, but it adds nothing to Him. It doesn't make God more God. God enjoys His kids more when we, when we live for His glory and His honor in a big way, but God is totally self-sufficient within Himself. Is that good news? Imagine if you had a needy God. Imagine if you had to prop Him up with what we could bring Him because you know, he may have a bad day, he might run out of resources, and phew, isn't he lucky to have a, a bunch of believers down on the tip of Africa who can rescue him up and down. But look, I want you to see it. Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? When Jesus broke bread, he took the bread and he broke it, and he says, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you. This sounds like God has more grace flowing from him to anything that could flow toward him. God is so kind and so gracious. The Bible says that God was raised. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's for us. Then he raises him from the dead. He was raised for our justification to make us right with him to give us the track record of Jesus, to credit us with the righteousness of His Son. God is for us. You can't get more wealth than that. He died the just 
for the unjust. What's the raw material by which God builds His forever family? Romans 5 tells us that God justifies the wicked. He makes people who are undeserving, who are blasphemers, who've messed up, who are selfish, who are, uh, you know, self-autonomous. He makes those kind. He brings them into this new orbit of life and grace and goodness. Such a beautiful thing. And then not only did he die for us, not only was he raised for us in the heavens, the Bible says that this heavenly high priest, he ever lives to make intercession for us. God is for us, people. And then this key verse just illustrates it. He commands these followers of Jesus in the first century and now in the 21st century to put their hope in God Good, good God is for us, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So what kind of God is this? He's self-sustaining. He's so good. He's for us. He doesn't need us, but He loves us. And that's what love does. It initiates. It doesn't obligate. It, he initiates toward us. This is a good, good God who's not out to pleasure-proof our lives. Everything for our enjoyment. We are creatures with a capacity for massive joy and also for massive joyful community of sharing. It's been like a, a life verse for me, but God doesn't only give of himself and his goodness. God also gives wisdom. And this is the four points I want to share. God wants to give us wisdom from this passage, four things God wants for us. This is wisdom. This is the kind of message that if I died tomorrow, I would want this thing to be one of the messages we keep front and center for the next hundred years in the church of Jesus. I believe this message with all of my heart. Number one, four things God wants for us. Da 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 da. Some of you are saying, Rebe, get on with it now. We want to know what are the four things. Well, I'm about to tell you. Stop being so impatient. Good listeners need to be leaning forward and say, okay. I'm ready. Huh? Ryan, you're my neighbor. You're supposed to be saying, yes, I'm ready. Okay. I'm being a bit pl playful because anybody who talks on money in the church has got a bullseye on their back as though there must be some underlying thing. Guys, it's what God wants for you, and it's absolutely what I want for you, for your future going, going forward. If you close the, the, the maturity gap, the gap between what we believe, how what we believe, and how we behave. We close that gap. This is this is a, is a non-issue, and I don't want to make it an issue. I just want to tell you we're aiming at the wrong things. Very often we talk about just cash flow transactions. No, God's wanting to be at work in our hearts, and that's where the focus is. Number one, da 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 da. God wants to upgrade our personal asset register. God wants to upgrade our personal. Asset register. If you've got a financial planner and tells you what your network worth is, let me just tell you, it's not what you're worth. It might reflect what you own. It's not what you're worth. Listen to Paul. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. So we're living in a culture that keeps telling us what we don't have. How many of you can identify with that? Do you get those random phone calls? Like, out of the blue, these people that just love you. They've never met you, but they've got your number. And they 
have a conviction that you are suffering tremendous need. And if you will just listen to their perfect pitch that will resolve all your, your life's problems while your food is on the stove, moms, your life is about to change. Have you ever had any of those? Oh, hello, Rigby. How are you doing today? Like my long-lost buddy has just met me. But of course, he knows what I need. I'm being facetious. And then they begin to make the pitch. This is what the advertisers do, whether it's on the telephone, uh, cold calls, whether it's in print, whether it's on TV. Advertisers understand something. They trade on our discontent. They trade on, on our misery. And they want to... They want to monetize our misery. Now, I know there's some marketers and people who, who are in that marketing world, but I, I, this is just the headline version. And remember, God's not out to pleasure-proof our lives. They're good things He wants us to enjoy. But here's, here's the point I want to make. The advertisers rob us of our self-respect and then sell it back to us at the price of the product. They say, if you have this thing, I was in a bank. I'm not going to mention the name, but it begins with an A. And there's this big sign up there with a guy in a, on, a, on a lilo off the sea with a martini in his hand in Mauritius. I mean, what's not to love about that? God freely gives us everything to enjoy. And underneath is the caption. This is the holiday that you deserve. I'm thinking, you don't know my bank balance, you don't know what I deserve or don't deserve, but, but basically it's a trap that says, do good to yourself, don't say no, just do everything you can, you know, mortgage your future, uh, get into debt, you know, get that stuff. They trade on our discontent, they want to sell it back to us, the price of the product. So let me give you uh, some quotes from a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who was 18 years old, New England preacher in the 1800s, and he preached a sermon on Christian happiness. And he says there are three reasons why any Christian can be completely happy and content. Headline to this point is God wants to upgrade our asset register. He says these words. The reason you can be completely happy and content, firstly, your bad things will turn out for good. Ultimately, your bad things will turn out for good. Have I done anything wrong here? Was it Don's fault again? Yeah. Sorry, Don. Say it again. Firstly, your bad things will turn out for good. Ultimately. There's not a single one of us that are not going to experience bad things. Not a single one of us that won't experience the loss of a loved one, loss of a dog, uh, a retrenchment, a can, you know, something goes wrong in your life. Something's, here's the point. The bad things in your life do not determine your worth. You can even have a burglary, which many of us have had, and you have less stuff, but that does not determine the final inventory of your asset registers, because God is saying the bad things in this life can subtract zero from how God will use that bad stuff for our good. Romans 8.28 says God will work all of that stuff out for good. 
that thing that Eloise shared around the will and how God can bring it all together and make sense of things. But very often in hindsight, in the moment, it is not so lekker nie, it is recht. How many Afrikaners have us in the in in camera? Okay, you can understand as I in Afrikaans praat, ne? Okay, that's about as good as it gets. So number one, your first thing is God has a way to work it for your good and for His glory. Secondly, your good things can't be taken away. So, but I, I mean, I had a TV and a, my wife's jewelry stolen and a burglary in our home and about seven, eight years ago. My good things were taken away. No, 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 not your ultimately good things. We've got to upgrade our asset register. You've got to say, what are the things that you, you have in this life that can never be taken from you? Notice what Paul said. He said, you brought nothing into the world. You born, born into the world, you didn't bring anything. And when you leave this world, you don't take anything. You've never seen a hearse with a trailer. So what are the good things that you can never lose? When you accept, accept it in the loving arms of the most gracious being in the universe, and he takes a rebel like Rigby Wallace, a blasphemer, a God-hater. And he says, I'll have you. Raise my white flag, and I said, God, I'm so sorry for how I've lived, and I'm asking you to rescue me. I come out of a non-Christian home, and I talk like this. It just, it's still so tender in me. I just wonder how tender it is in, in your heart. Have you forgotten the moment you stepped from a life of poverty, because what I had, no matter how well I brought up, the good schools I went to, I was in spiritual poverty and bondage until I crossed that line of faith into a new spiritual reality. My asset register got upgraded in the most remarkable way, and what I have in Christ can never be taken away. God put His Holy Spirit in my life. He put uh, uh, grace in my life. Uh, he's put a hope and a future in my life. Firstly, your bad things will turn out for good. Secondly, your good things can't be taken away. If that's not good enough, uh, Jonathan Edwards says, the best, things are, the best things are yet to come. Stuff's happened to you in the past. Will turn out for good and even in the present. The good things in this life that ebb and flow, come and go. But the best things are yet to come. Folk. So glorious, Paul said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has for those who love him. You don't have an upgraded asset register. When things go wrong, we get fearful, we get anxious about all kinds of stuff. Somehow, the Holy Spirit, the way he works in my life, has just cauterized all that nonsense and said, get your mind on the prize. Aim higher. Lift your gaze, raise your head against the timeline of eternity and this crazy, challenging time of, of, of history. God calls us joint heirs with His own Son, Jesus Christ. We are inheriting mind-blowingly good uh, uh, stuff waiting for us in the future. So here's the big point in, in, in this first thing. God wants to upgrade your personal asset register. Big point. The others are not as long. Hopefully. Big point is you're richer right now than you could ever imagine if you've put your faith in Jesus. 
mind-blowingly glorious guarantees. See, our little life on this planet is like a burp against eternity. Why are we trying to shore up the burp? We need to connect our brief little time here to the bigger narrative, to the higher reality, to the riches of the glory of God that has come to us in Jesus. Secondly, big point number two. Okay, you ready? God wants to protect us from being trapped in the wrong cycle. This is what he says in verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. Notice he's talking to people who are already rich. So he's trying to like just put the handbrake. Don't, don't be naive around the trap. You can get trapped whether you have little or whether you have plenty. Rich people think money will solve all their problems. Poor people just imagine it. Same trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires. And that's, we've, God's given us desires. God's given us the capacity to enjoy beautiful things, a good glass of wine, fantastic holiday. That's not, God's not out to pleasure-proof us. The harmful desires there are disordered desires, addictions, idolatrous preoccupation with the good life that takes us away from the God life, the God-centered life. And he says, this stuff is what plunges people into ruin and destruction. This is the stuff that grows the gap between what we say we believe and how we actually behave. And he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's almost like Paul seemed to understand the 21st century. Almost like he understood Catonians. Almost like he understood that church down the road that's not called Common Ground. Is it possible to be trapped by money and not know it? I mean, the issue of self-awareness and blind spots is you would never know those things. It takes somebody else to come along and say, oops, can we just make you aware of something? This is what Paul's doing. He's serving notice on our blind spots in our culture and in our moment of history. So how would you know you're trapped by money? Can we have a little bit of fun? Will you, will you lean in? I'm not going to ask you to participate, but just like, let's do the money trap test together. Number one, you know you're trapped by money if you're talking about it all the time. Number two, when we exaggerate its power, rich people, poor people, we just imagine that it's the answer to everything. Number three, when it controls our choices, it's in the bank, therefore I can afford it is not the same as I could. I could is not the same as I should. Where's the wisdom? Where's the prayerfulness? Where's the, the sense of partnering with God? Because remember, he, he's, he provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So he's not out to pleasure, proof, but he does want us to be wiser. Number four, when it defines our identity, we start to talk about the thing as though it's gonna add to who we are. How many of you remember 1929, the Wall Street uh, Stock Exchange crash? Well, nobody, because we, none of us were around there. Or maybe just Lou. Hey, Lou. <laughs> what happened there on Wall Street is on the Monday, the Stock Exchange, 1929, on this particular month, crashed by 12%, 13%. The Tuesday crashed by 
12%. And then it was on the way down, and for the rest of the week, people started to, many people started to jump out of high-rise buildings. Why would people jump out of buildings? Because the stock exchange were plummeting. Pension funds, global wealth, interest rates, inflation, all the stuff that has come in many cycles. Here, here's the issue. People confused their net worth with their actual worth. They had merged what they own with what they are. It's a trap. You are not what you own. You are not what you have. You are not what you experience. You are what you are by the grace of God. You are a rescued son or daughter. Number five. How do we know we're under the money trap? When we experience overwhelming loss <laughs> when we give it away. It's like, <gasps> <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, Sean, you look like you can identify with that. <laughs> I'm just being naughty. <laughs> Guys, I want to free us. I want to tell us something. You know what you've got in your minds right now? You're thinking, oh, what a stooge. What a selfish person. That's not the problem here. I'll give you the greater tragedy here. I'll give you the immaturity read here. The people experience overwhelming loss when they give it away. Or people who've got such a low view of God, it's not stinginess, it's fear. The God has given them all this wealth over the years. They start to feel suddenly if I give it away, it, it's not going to come anymore because God is going to stop being God and He's going to go on a cosmic holiday and I'm now needing to be in charge to generate all. No. God has been God before you and I were around and all his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We can trust him. And Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. Your, your heavenly father knows what you, have, what you need. He feeds the birds of the air, etc., etc. the grass of the field. And you are more important than any of that stuff. He's a good, good father. Your real issue here is not stinginess. Your real issue here is your tiny little revelation of who God is. And it's shrinking you into fear and smallness. And you'll find as we move on through this talk, there's almost the opposite of what happens when this understanding of, uh, of being free from money traps, it's almost like a liberating power comes on us that is supernatural. And then Paul says, we don't have time for it, but he just simply says, Three disciplines to overcome the money trap is number one, contentment. Start with what you have, not what you don't have. Start thanking God for what you do have. And that verse, godliness with contentment. Godliness, the God-centered life. Contentment is peace about God's promises to you in a crazy world. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The Greek word for great gain, oh, I love this. He just said, all those false teachers are saying that lots of wealth is, is uh, uh, or getting money through religious nonsense is great gain. And Paul says, no, no, great gain, godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain is mega wealth. You've got, you want to know when your asset register is what it should be? It's a resistance in your life to the trap of money. 
And the contentment you feel is like a peace in the midst of the storms. You're smiling on the inside. Number two, grace. Can you understand the grace of God? Grace of God is the operating system of the universe. And when we understand grace, God comes to rebels, makes them sons and daughters, turns uh, enemies into friends, and then he says, hey, I want to include you in what I'm doing, in my purposes and vision for the world. I want to include you in all of that. Uh, it's all by grace. John Luther, Martin Luther said to a group of pastors, he said, do everything you can to get the gospel of grace into your people. And if needs be, beat it into them. Now, I don't, I'm not going along with that, but, but his point is just simply this, that sometimes our lives are like the coin in the slot machine. We've, we've heard it, we've got it, we're sort of saying yes to it, there's this, there's this gap between its sinking and out comes the Coke or um, the Coke you drink, eh? not the one you snow. Uh, I'm just wanting to be sure. You never know what you get in Cebu. My point is, guys, God's after it getting out. Like that vending machine, sometimes the coin is stuck. What do you got to do? Okay, let's not go there. Okay, I'm not saying... Uh, there needs to be a jarring sense of a wake-up to get that gospel goodness of God into our deepest part of us. To, uh, it's like a, a, you know the book, uh, uh, Great Expectations? I've got a message I love preaching called Grace Expectations. We've got to start to get to a moment in our lives where every day we wake up and we understand we're in the grave of God. Today is a miracle. Not a perfect day with no problems. It's a miracle of God in His goodness at work in and through me. Lovely. Okay. And then the final thing he says to get three of the money trap is simplicity. And I know some of you are thinking, well, Paul says here, if you have food and clothing, be content with that. They feel like there's a full stop. Full stop. God says, if you've got that, that's enough. Food and clothing. No cars, no houses, no ballet lessons for your little girl, no, none of the good stuff, no holidays, just food and clothing. Does that, does that sound like it's consistent with who gives you everything for your enjoyment? Now, what is he saying? He's saying, start reducing your, your, this anxiety about what you need to be happy. Just be content with less. It's a metaphor. It's not a literal, uh, because he goes on to say, he says, to the rich among you, be rich. They didn't only have food and clothing. So he's not talking to an audience of mixed economic bandwidths and saying, we now got a new standard called food and clothing. Now what he's got is a new level, a new call of simplicity to enjoy what you do have, be free from the anxiety of bigger, better, faster, and, and, uh, and be free from the money trap, the, the anxiety of it promising you so much but ultimately delivers so, so little. Number three, I'll do these two last ones uh, quicker. Although this, these last two are, my, are the ones I get most excited about because they, they just demonstrate how good and kind God is. Number three, God wants a higher maturity for us as good stewards of His blessing. Remember, we're talking about closing the gap of, from immaturity to maturity. Where do you see this, Rigby, in this passage? So glad you've asked. Verse 17. Command those that are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Immaturity, mark number one, is arrogant. Nor to put their hope in wealth. Immaturity, mark number two, is to think 
money is going to improve your, your ultimate worth. So he's saying, this is no longer just about money, it's about your maturity. I want to free you from immaturity, the immaturity of arrogance, pride, the pride of life. Being a prideful person is like riding a bicycle into the wind. Question, would you like to ride a bicycle into the wind or with the wind? The Bible says God gives grace to the humble. That's riding the bike with the wind, moving you way more easier. If you're arrogant and prideful, you're going to spend your life. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And Paul is trying to get us and Timothy and the church in Ephesus and the church in Common Ground to be very careful about when we're living in the blessing of God and the goodness of God that we don't see ourselves as better than everyone else. We don't look at people, you know, lift our nose of people because they don't drive our car or live in our area or have our education. How do you know a, 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 a guy's been to Weinberg Boys? He'll tell you. Sorry, Donnie, that was just for you. I went to Glenwood in Durban, and I've used that card so many times. But you know what? It's Paul, Paul spits on that kind of pig. We honor our roots and our family, but Paul says, I count all of that stuff as dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's saying, my true riches is in relation to Christ. That other stuff are blessings. They could have been good to me, but the moment God's not in the picture, godliness is there, we, we start to drift into that and we get arrogant. It's our kind of uh, 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 cultural CV. We move around with that. Very unhelpful. But he wants us to move from that immaturity. What does maturity look like? I'm so glad you've asked. He says, command those guys not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Get your focus on how good and kind God is. He's so kind. Mature people have a high regard for God's goodness, His generosity. They don't have a, 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 a scarcity spirit. A scarcity spirit. Oops. Let's, when we're hosting, let's do sardines on toast because they're marginally more reasonable than baked beans on toast. I'm just using silly examples, a bad example. Forget all of that. My point is sometimes we, we, we cut back because of the scarce, scarcity spirit and God is saying, I want to free you from that. And here's the big point about the freedom that Paul is calling us. All right, listen, you've got to get this. This is, this is Gospel 101. See, when you become a Christian, it's simply just calling on the name of the Lord. Our, 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 it, it begins with the name of Jesus on our lips. Jesus, save me. But the Gospel experience is consummated by the nature of Jesus in our hearts. And what Paul is trying to tell these guys is... Get away from arrogance and get a higher view of God, such a high view of God, that that generosity in God starts to throw, flow through the riverbed of your life. You become that kind of godly person. So it's not about money. It's about transformation into the image of God. Think about it, how kind and gracious God is. He doesn't need anything from us. What He wants to give us is 
is participation in what he's like, what he's wanting to accomplish. So he calls us into this partnership where he says, I am going to give you the most exhilarating feeling you could ever imagine. I want to turn your life, instead of a dam that receives, I want to turn it into a riverbed that releases. Because that's how I've been operating the universe with, with, uh, with Grace OS 1.0 for billions and billions of years before there was a world or whatever it is. I created in grace. I've sustained in grace. I now save in grace. It's the operating system, and there's no 2.0 version of that operating system because it's perfect. It doesn't need any extra work, and it's so simple because everybody, no matter where you are in the full range of this operating system or your economic bandwidth, every one of us can experience this personal, ongoing transformation of being more and more like our good, good Father. We're closing the gap between what we know, what we believe, and how we behave, but we're also closing the gap on our immaturity and starting to get a vision for what does maturity look like? Wow, I want more grace to flow from me than to me. I want to start to steward my resources in a way that makes a massive difference to the world. And the way Paul writes it to capture this maturity dynamic, he writes to the the, the Ephesian church in another letter, not this letter to Timothy, who's the pastor. He writes it in the Ephesian letter, and he says, now this congregation is exploding, it's growing with what kind of people? Well, let me tell you. Rich, poor, men, women, slaves that have come to faith in the Roman Empire and found a new home in the community of God. Many of these slaves were thieves. And he says in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, he says, let them who steal, he doesn't hide it and doesn't want to embarrass, you guys in your previous life were thieves, he said, let, let them who steals no longer steal, let them work with their hands, that they may have something to share. What's so shocking about that? If you're thieves, you're stealing because you were battling to eat, have clothes, you were stealing because you took responsibility to bend the universe toward yourself, taking shortcuts. Now Paul says, no longer steal. Work with your hands. Be economically active so that you can pay your bills. No. So that you can have a better reputation. No. So that our church is not embarrassed by thieves who claim to be members. No. No. So that you may enjoy the beauty and the joy of having something to share. Yes, it will include paying the bills and all of that stuff. But Paul, another time, writes to the Corinthians and he says, God, give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now just join me and imagine the doffest farmer you know. I would imagine he'd be the guy who has a bumper harvest and the next year he takes all his seed and he just eats it. See, the way God He's always using these uh, biological um, uh, metaphors to move us on, to help our understanding. Seed, bread. Well, bread you eat, seed you sow. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, and he's saying to thieves, make sure that it's moving not just to you in my love because I give you everything you need. Make sure it's flowing through you, irrespective of what you, you earn, and it doesn't always have to be money. 
doesn't always have to be literally, because what do we say to unemployed people? We find ways to dignify that season of hardship in their lives by, by creating other opportunities for them to at least earn something. But I'm talking to those of us who are earning. I'm saying let's not eat our seed. Let's have this nature that Jesus through the gospel is busy working into us, weaving into us, so that we become part of an army of generous people pushing the mission of Christ forward in the world. Does that make sense? So what are the three things, and then I'll give you the fourth one if you can give them to me. Number one, God wants for us to upgrade our, free us from the money trap. And number three, He wants to bring us to maturity. Not about the money, it's about the heart condition around which money most freely flows. Last one, da-da-da-da, drum solo. God wants to convince us to invest offshore to secure the best possible returns. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, that's just a trap, Rigby. I'm not really interested in that. I tell you, I believe this with all of my heart. I believe this with all of my heart. You know the guy who said, I just can't give it away. I work so hard. He's not stingy. He's fearful. When fear goes, you have the highest expectation of God, irrespective of the state of the economy. You can still be wise, but, you know, you, 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 you can anticipate ebbs and flows and economic reality, but you don't go into hatches down. God has banished or, or he's gone to a, a place of the universe where he feels safer. No, 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 no. God sent his son into this world and he by the spirit is very active in this world. God is saying, I want to teach you something. I want something for you that connects our brief little life in this life, the burp. I want to, I want to show you how I connect it to life eternal. And some of our biggest regrets were when we get there because we didn't respond with the right understanding to this kind of message. It's not a heaven and hell issue. It's a maturity issue, but let's get it. This is the ultimate hottest investment tip you'll ever get in your life. You know that thing of hedge funds, ran going up and down. I'm trying to show off. We had some real gurus in the first meeting, and I, I said, Yana, what you do is you the, the, the big investment houses, they, if your pensions and rands, they have a way to stick it in dollars and da 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 da. Am I on the right track? And so you invest offshore to protect the value of your local pension. Yeah. This is what Paul says to those economically empowered people. He says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share in this way. In what way? rich in good deeds, being generous, willing to share this grace flowing from us. If ever you doubted whether God loves you and has your highest interest at heart, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. I'll tell you what faithful pastors do. They connect the people of God to the coming age. They connect the burp to eternity. And friends, we are not temporal beings in an eternal world. We are eternal beings, that's what Paul's showing here, in a temporal world. 
When Christ returns, he turns this old, raggedy, broken, crazy world into a new heavens and a new earth. Hebrews 6 and verse 5 describe those who've come to faith as those who've tasted the powers of the coming age. What, what's, what's, what's the writer to the Hebrews saying? He's saying what you're doing in this life when you get this understanding is you're siphoning out of eternity future wisdom and grace and power for your life in this age. We're the most futuristic people on the planet, people. We are alive to a new possibility. We are not victims of ebbs and flows of currency movements. He's saying, here's the reason why you can be free because you never, ever, ever, ever lose what you give away. That's what Paul said. Everything you give is a foundation for you in the coming age. It connects that this very little thing called money, the way we steward is an expression of our maturity. And what God commends us for when we get there is not, oh, thanks for your money, because he never needed it. It's thanks for being willing to grow up and participate in my operating system. Welcome into the fullest expression of this in the ages of ages. Oh, my dear. The big point of this point is your future returns are literally out of this world. Every time you give to the forward movement of the gospel, to the poor, it's part of laying the foundation for the coming age, number one, and number two, laying hold of the life that is truly life. In this life, we get the upgraded life, splashback from eternity into the present. We live in a new way. Friends, this is over the top. This is beyond good. In addition to blessing us in this age with all things for our good and for His glory, God now is saying, I want to convert your temporal wealth in your hands to eternal wealth for your credit. I mean, does it get better than that? No investment fees. I'm going to take what you give and I'm going to convert it. Folk, it's a kind of heart here. It's closing the maturity gap. It's not about the ransom sense. It's getting this new operating system. And he says, how do you do that? Three things. Just do good. Do good. Use your money in a way that helps people, not just yourselves and your families. Use your money in a way that helps people. Secondly, be rich in good deeds. Be rich in good deeds. Not just throw money at a problem. You yourself have a heart for the poor. Middle of COVID, I got hijacked by God in terms of, uh, Donnie might have shared some of the thing about the Bridges program out there. Suddenly, uh, this year we'll have a, a probably about three to 5,000 kids whose lives would have radical transforming experiences. In the middle of COVID, we were uh, invited to be part of, of buying this uh, retreat center. I mean, I just said, no. How would I on earth ever be part of that? But what it did, the gift of COVID, or the gift of this thing in COVID, it's a better way to say it, was a reorientation of my life. Hey, Wallace, get a 100-year vision for people Beyond yourself, beyond your small little world, get a hundred-year vision, and it is glorious. 
to see how this thing is starting to play out midweek with the most under-resourced schools. It's so nice to feel. It's, I'm spending the currency of my time, the currency of my leadership. I've put some money, money into it. I can't afford to do more. But I'm so excited. And we don't want you to be doing this. We want you. I'm just telling you the, the illustration. We want you to focus on what Seaberg needs. This is already starting to attract investment and wealth from business people and big companies. We're so encouraged by that. But I had to not just give my money. I had to give myself. A little bit of myself or a little more of myself. So second thing, first is do good. Second, be rich in good deeds. Third is be liberal and generous. Just more of a bigger heart. And the end result is you'll be taking hold of life that is truly life. You'll never be more alive than when this operating system is at work in us. So number one, let God upgrade our Asset register, you're richer than you could ever imagine if Christ has saved you. You've got something that money can't buy. You've got something that inflation can't appreciate. What you do have is the capacity to appreciate it more and more by reflecting on what you do have in Jesus more and more. Secondly, God wants to, in his love for us, care for us, wants to serve notice on those disordered desires, wants to break the back of anxiety, wants us to know he's trustworthy, wants us to know he's good. And thirdly, God wants to mature us so that we start to express His nature into this world. You can't be more alive than that when you are expressing the very nature of God. And finally, God wants to connect our lives to an eternal perspective on life and wants to say to you, invest offshore for your own sake. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth, moth and rust come and destroy or thieves destroy. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He writes to the Philippians in chapter four and he doesn't need anything from them. He just says, I don't need anything, but what I am commending you for your giving, your generosity, he says, because I want what you've given to be for your credit in the age to come. These guys knew something about a bigger, bigger, more beautiful narrative how to live our lives in this crazy, crazy world. Now, I'm eyeballing you. Was that helpful? Can I come back again? <laughs> I'm not trying to suck endorsement as much as I, I just want you to know it took a lot of courage to preach this stuff, but I want you to know I believe this and I think genuine pastoral care is to, is to call people to, to maturity, and that's essentially what this message is all about. God, I want to thank you. Why don't you stand with me right now? Lord, I want to thank you for every family represented here. Lord, we're as different as our fingerprints. Our economic circumstances are different, but uh, what the constant is is that you're moving toward us through the Scriptures in your amazing love and goodness, and you're announcing to us in the depths of our being that you're a good, good God and you can be trusted and that you always have our highest interests at heart. But I want to invite you to be more deeply at work in my life and all of our lives. We want to say, Lord, we need this work of grace. Ask you, Holy Spirit, to, uh, 
to be at work in us in a way that what we, uh, what we, or how we, how we behave and how we live is a, is a, is a more generous, robust, full expression of what we say we believe. That you fill our lives with this possibility to live the God-centered life with mega wealth that we have in Jesus Christ. Bless these beautiful people, these families, for your glory, our good. Amen. Thank you very much.